Nikki? Nick. <laughs> Thanks for doing this. Thanks for being here. Really excited to have you. I am elated to be here and was really pumped when you asked me to be on it. So yeah. I've been a fan since you launched it. And uh, Yeah, thank you. Yeah. We're trying. We're trying to make it um, accessible to highlight staff, to highlight friends and colleagues from around the country, to talk uh, about what it's like to work in the field or being in recovery or whatever might come up. So um, it's really important for us to just try to keep it casual so people can access. So you are a Jedi Knight in my mind and a good friend of mine. We're kind of like conference buddies now these days, right? You Completely. sort of have your I feel like group. we're more than conference buddies. Like we're, That's true. Yeah. That's true. And we're not clicky, just to be clear for anybody that might be watching. Correct. Friends and family only, potentially. <laughs> uh, we're very welcoming. Very. <laughs> not clicky at all. But you, I just want to sing your praises a little bit because you've been in the field for a while and your name is Nikki Soda and you're the membership officer for the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers. And what I really respect and love about you is that every conference I'm at, you are making sure people feel welcome, which if anybody feels like I'm not good at that, it's not because I don't like you. <laughs> it's just because I'm a bit of an introvert. Right. And so my I get a little overstimulated. And so then I just like sit in the corner. Completely understand <laughs> charge that. charge my batteries. But just job well done with your work at NAATP and how much it's grown over the past few years, just since I've been involved over the past five years, it's just been a pleasure to get to know you and um, just be a partner in supporting all providers. I really mean that. Yeah, thank you so much. And that's yeah. that's really kind of you to say. And conferences are a unique beast, right? And um, something that I get my energy from. I'm an extrovert, um, but it's so important to to be inclusive. And so one of the things that um, I like to consider myself as a connector. Yeah. And so uh, conferences give up like a prime opportunity to be able to connect people. And I always try to seek out some people who might feel, you know, not who are new. And, um, right. and so that's important for me. Well, you and your team, shout out to Marvin and Katie, Zane, I'm going to forget names now, yeah. Beth, Annie. Right. Luke is our new Luke communications Luke manager. Y'all uh -huh. do that very well. I've always been so impressed because I've been to conferences where it feels very exclusive and um, the NAATP things always feel very inclusive. So good. just well, job well done. Thank you very much. And that's uh, that's good. That's good to hear. And um, as our field becomes, we're trying to make it more inclusive. And so it's important that we set, if we're talking about it all the time, then we need to show it, right? I'm a That's firm right. believer that actions right. speak louder than words. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm glad to hear that it's we working. We got to stop talking about it. We got to be about it, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So um, I know a little bit of the story, so I can, I'm kind of cheating a little bit, but sure. just if you may, how did you get into this field? Yeah. You know? Well, so I will preface it with I'm a woman in long-term recovery. So I got sober in uh, April 2004. And, um, Congratulations. Thank you. My, my background, though, I, I majored in communications, and event planning was really my uh, forte. And so I did corporate and nonprofit event planning, and then I did high-end wedding planning for a long time and thought that that was my dream job, and it was at the time. Um, my husband is a therapist, and I was getting to a little envious, to be honest, that he was around <laughs> recovery all the time. Right. And we went to a holiday party and I was talking to, um, his name is Ben Court, and um, he was at Cedar at the time and we were just kind of shooting the, the stuff. And um, he said, well, you know, there's jobs that you can do events 
And I was like, what? Right. This was back in, um, I think, 2011. And I had no idea. I truly had no idea. I was an active alumni at my at the treatment center that I went to, um, but didn't know that the job. And so from there, he said there is actually a position that's, uh, that does marketing and alumni at Harmony, uh, which is up in Estes Park. And he said, let me give you Marvin Ventrell's phone number. He's the director of, of business development. And um, so I, I reached out to Marvin. I'm like, listen, I don't, I have my life experience. I'm like, here is all of my work experience in organizing and event planning and um, give me a shot. And he gave me a shot at Harmony. And I could not have asked for a better place to have started my professional career in the behavioral health field. Yeah. And uh, so from that's how that's how I got started. And I've been I, I've I I never do things by dipping my toe in. Uh, so I dove in headfirst, right. and um, it's really been a wonderful a wonderful ride that I feel like is just kind of getting started. And um, you know that there's a lot more growing to do. Yeah. So tell me about your experience working. Harmony is a great program mm-hmm. in Colorado. Correct. Estes Park. 12-step based, yes. Beautiful, by the way. I was there maybe two years ago, and um, I think it was the elk that were like- Bugling? Yeah, yeah. and screaming, and it's just a beautiful um, gym. It's a little um, alarming at first, right? It was. I was like- uh, what is that? Is this supposed to, or, you know, but it was, I was like, okay, we're, you know, in the Rockies. Like, this is what I, this is the experience that you want to have. And right. it's beautiful up there. But for those that might not have experience, you sure. know, boots on the ground, supporting a legacy 12 step based addiction treatment provider. What did you learn professionally? What was it like day to day? What insights do you take from that experience that maybe translate to your work today? Yeah, that's a great question. First, I'll have to say that there was so many more components to it than I realized from being a patient in residential treatment. Um, and so that was very eye-opening to to really learn and understand all the different departments that there yeah. that there were um, and how, how they work together and how important it is for them to work together. And so one of the things I would say right off the bat was um, – you know, seeing some silos. And so not saying this in a negative light, it was just one of the things that um, that I saw and that we had group meetings about. And, you know, they're not the only treatment center where admissions sometimes works very separately than business development. That sometimes right. works separate than clinical. And so for me being able to work there and see how they overcame those challenges and how they worked through them to create solutions um, was very eye-opening. But one of the things, too, that I want to say is um, the power of the alumni. And so I'm a huge advocate of alumni, but having them come back on campus and I would meet part of my job would be to meet with the patients that were getting ready to um, to move on. And because at at Harmony, it was just residential. So there was Mm. no step down. And so I would meet with all of them and go through continuing care apps, how to find meetings, how to reach out to a sponsor, things like that. And um, for me, it was so, it was really, really cool to see the change that happened, but then to see and stay connected with alumni as they went out. And so for me, that was one of the really powerful things of seeing how the benefits of a treatment center and how it works. So that's another component of it. But then um, reaching out in the community and Colorado Mm. at that time had about six residential facilities in the whole state, Mm. very, very tight knit community. So I was able to 
really be embraced by the other treatment providers and had a good group of mentors, which I'm a huge proponent of mentorship. And um, so knowing that I was working at an ethical facility and being able to formulate collaborative relationships with other really good treatment centers, um, it taught me a lot and gave me a really solid foundation. Yeah, you can really get a lot of insight. And this is... um might sound a bit combative and I hope it's not, but you know, how integrated is an organization with other peer organizations, providers in their community is super important, right? Right. If they're disengaged for whatever reason, um, in the absence of information and narrative can get created for good, better, and different. And so provider like Harmony continues to certainly at the national level and regional level be a solid, um, trusted partner because there's enough folks in that state just like there are enough folks in tennessee for cumberland heights to fill all of our programs right there 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 is no competition and um there is value in that collaboration and joining together to make sure that we're building an effective atmosphere of recovery to support people. And it goes beyond the treatment centers too. It's the schools, it's right. it's the other partners that maybe mental health partners or academic partners that are coloring and helping supporting your alumni base. That's super critical. A hundred percent. And there's there's two things that, that came to mind though. Um, there was a CEO group of those mm. six facilities in Colorado that would regularly get together, Bobby Ferguson being one of them and who's the CEO of Jay Walker Lodge. And they were so willing to help each other out and work together that for me, that's how I thought it was everywhere. Right, um, right, Being right. that that was my my first job opportunity in this field. And so that really set a stage for this can be a collaborative. So when I started going to different places and I was seeing, oh, it's it's not like this everywhere. This is, this is special. Um, and so that's something though that I'm really glad that I was able to experience and see because I try to share that information and get other get other states to do it. And Tennessee is, is you guys are, are good about having collaborative. Yeah. You have to be intentional, right? You know, it's, 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 it, um, well, you have to be intentional. You can't just have good intentions. You have to take action. Correct. I guess maybe that's a better way to say it. Um, and what, what does that really look like pragmatically? Well, you have to spend some of your organizational dollars, right? You have to spend some of your FTE time at making sure that your outreach teams or your alumni support teams or your peer recovery support specialists are out in the community and really building relationships. And I am not talking about referrals. Right. It's I'm not talking that. Of, it is not that, right? It's not front end. This is back end of, of these businesses to make sure that patients are really supported appropriately in their community. And when that happens, it's a real beautiful thing. And that's where you sure. get these events or a picnic or a concert like we're going to have our annual concert tonight and it's going to be standing room only with our friends right you know with people who care about recovery and want to support um people getting well in tennessee right you know and that so the main word is care and i think that that's something too that is an essential component from a ceo is is to care yeah have you ever thought of so as you're talking about your story one of the things there's a common thread with you that I think is interesting that I just thought of is that <laughs> well lay it on me <laughs> your experience yeah your experience at Harmony and understanding how important those relationships were in mentorship absolutely no doubt in my eyes as I've gotten to know you over the years colors 
what you do day to day and the actions that I see you taking with NAATP. Do you see that yeah. connection? Do you think that that was a part of what kind of um, motivates you to make sure that people feel welcome? Oh, definitely. You definitely. Because there's a I, new person that's, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Because I've been on both sides of it. Right. I've, I've been on the newcomer really needing to have guidance and knowing how important it is to have good guidance. Yeah. And, um, and now I feel like I'm growing and I'm able, I have three mentees right now. Um, they are rock star women who sometimes I'm like, I don't know why you're calling me. Yeah. And um, that they call me regularly for professional advice. Yeah. And um, and I hope that I'm a help to them. And yeah. so I, yeah, I see it twofold and definitely. Something else that's really interesting about our field, which some people are aware of, maybe others aren't, is there's so many folks that are operating these programs, running these programs, working in these programs that are in recovery themselves. Right. So I, I think about our experiences like being in Vermont with High Watch and being at Bill Wilson's childhood home or making sure that we hit the meeting at the conference, the 12-step meeting, right. or going out after an event and doing a recovery activity. It is so unique to be able to share that professional development and also recovery development right. with folks that uh, work all over the country. It's it's maybe the most special part of our field. Without a doubt. Yeah. I, I feel that way. And, and that's, I feel such passion about that. And for me, it's sometimes work doesn't feel like work. Like right, right. being, being up here and getting to do the things that I'm doing today doesn't feel like work. And part of that is because we get to talk about how I get to learn how you guys, how Cumberland is helping people. Um, I get to to learn you as a person in recovery, how you're right. helping people. And then um, we get to weave that together and then we get to get paid for it. <laughs> right. right. And it's it's really special and it's and it's rare. And, you know, I have a lot of friends that are not in recovery and, and their jobs are very, very different. And so it's not to say it's better or worse. Right. It's just it's different. But I don't take. I try not to take a day for granted that what I get to do is unique in the fact that I get to be around a lot of people who are in recovery and who, um, you know, it's, it's the promises coming true, as cheesy as that sounds. But I really, I'm really grateful for the job that I have for the fact that I get to do those things. Yeah, you get the unique opportunity. We were talking earlier when we, we were at lunch with several people and um, you part of your job is to go across the country and visit providers and really get to know the people that are running these facilities and kind of celebrate, yeah. right, um, their success and their ability to serve their communities, which is super unique, right? Because sometimes the staff that are working at these places, oftentimes most of them aren't having that experience, right? you know, of going to Colorado and sitting at the round table or in Maryland. And you know what I, you know I, what I mean? No, 100% yeah. I do, which is a part of what makes me good at my job yeah. is the fact that I'm able to go and absorb and take notes and see the good things that providers are doing and, and make connections. Cause that, I can't tell you like how many times you've texted me and been like, Hey, I just met so-and-so they're a new provider or they have a new program. I thought of you for this reason. Can you all the time, which and, is so beneficial. And I love doing that. My friend Mallory, who works at Brookdale, had, I think she, I know she said it, that she's a, a people connector. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm taking, I'm borrowing that. Yeah. And um, that's something that that I like to do. And I, so part of me traveling across the country and getting to visit is that I get to learn and see what different people are doing. And um, a lot of good things that can be translated and, and connected. 
And I also see some not so good stuff, right? And so I'm able to then take that information and see if there's something from the association standpoint um, that can be done. And we're not a regulatory body by any means. Um, But sometimes there's things that, because I see so much that I can take back and be like, "Ah, maybe take a look at this. That's something that really um, value in my experience with our trade organization, with NATP uh, is, so I love what you're saying because- in some ways you can you have your finger on the pulse of the field in a way that's unique and those observations can maybe inform or complement the strategic goals of the entire grouping of a thousand providers right Correct. over a thousand providers in the US and maybe beyond yeah um i'm curious how does NAATP codify that how how do how do you guys support providers around the country what do y'all do if yeah. you will. No, that's an excellent question. And so we have a number of different really good services and benefits that we offer to our members. We'll go back to that connection piece, I feel is one of the greatest benefits is being able to have this network available at your disposal to pick up the phone or send an email, ask a question to. If you need somebody in a certain state, we can help find that certain person. Um, so that connection is really is really important. And it's something too, you've been vetted. And so you know if you're talking to another NAATP member that that you're talking to a qualified provider. So I think that that's a huge benefit. Um, we have a number of different resources that we are constantly pouring out. So Dr. Annie Peters is our director of research and education, and she does a really good job of being able to pull in new information. And we put out white papers, we're doing monthly webinars. We do a number of blogs too. So those resources are, are, I believe, really helpful. And we do them for every department. So you have HR resources, operational yeah. resources, and clinical. Yeah. And then um, we have advocacy. And so we have we do have a director of public policy who lives in D.C., Mark Dunn. He does a wonderful job. He's uh, been with us for a long time. And he's boots on the ground in D.C., really keeping a pulse on federal issues. And um, part of my role now is I've taken on state advocacy and working on creating state chapters um, to ultimately create Recovery Hill Days in every state is my goal. (laughs) Let's do it. And um, so advocacy is a big part because a lot of times, like, let's look at the opioid settlement money. There is a lot of members who don't understand how this process works, and it's different within each state. That's right. And so we want to be able to be a resource to help navigate through issues that come up like that. So those are those are a couple. And then I would be um, remiss if I didn't mention FORCE, which is our foundation of research, science, and education. And it, um, Dr. Peters has done a phenomenal job, uh, and so have you. And so I want to yeah. give, now it's my turn to call you a Jedi yeah, for um, being able to create this wonderful initiative. It's more than an initiative, but it's so desperately needed in our field. And to, to be able to bring together outcomes to show not only, for me, showing the data to policymakers is imperative, um, but it's also to insurance providers. And then it's also to community members to say treatment works, here is what's working, and here is our proof to show it. Because without those numbers, without legitimate research and the scientific data to show it, it doesn't mean anything. Right. And so so that would be another huge yeah. benefit. Yeah, and your annual conference. I. That's really how I got involved 
with NATP and my role at Cumberland Heights. Um, of course, Jay, our CEO, has been involved for a number of years, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, y'all's work as a trade organization with the Eth- Ethics Guidebook Correct. a number of years ago, and Peter Thomas. Right, that's another big part. Yeah, um, which was a huge revision uh, to the standards of ethical responsibility in our field, which I think has been a really great thing. Yeah, can we talk about that for one second? Because I, I skipped, I skipped over that. And um, Peter Thomas was our director of quality assurance, and um, he, I call him Detective Thomas, yes. because he is so good at um, ensuring that the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. And so for our ethics, we have a, we created a code of ethics that went out in 2018 or 2017, excuse me. And so at this time, marketing practices were going really by the sidelines in, in a number of facilities. And a handful of facilities, I should say, but they were becoming extremely detrimental to community members who were looking for a specific thing in a treatment center. And the website could have a picture of a facility on the beach be very deceptive and very deceiving. And um, so we cracked down on that and we created this code of ethics that we asked every member adhere to. And we had some members who said no, who flat out said, no, I won't do that. Um, we gave a number of chances for members to make the make the correct revisions that needed to be, right. and and they were really reasonable revisions. Right. Um, and so we lost a number of members in in 2017-18, but then what happened is we gained a whole bunch yep. because we go by the premise of quality over quantity. And so losing some folks, losing some providers who were not willing to adhere to a code of ethics, um, we were able to get more who said, no, I want, okay, I wasn't a member before because you guys were letting these players we were in now. Yeah. It's our responsibility. Right. You know, and I feel real strongly about this and this kind of colors in between the lines with force and what we've done at Cumberland is when I started here, uh, really solely focused on research, one of the first things that we talked about as a leadership team is we want to be able to communicate with patients, external stakeholders, partners, and payers, but mostly and more, most importantly, I would say patients and their families, how we measure success. Right. And I have a thing that I say all the time, which is n- newsflash, no one owns algebra. <laughs> so sometimes organizations are very, you know, uh, smoke and mirrors, if you will, about how they measure success, the tools they use, how they analyze it. what secret are we really keeping? And so since I've been here, we've actually published, it's it's on our website 365 days a year on the front page. Right. Right, an annual outcomes report. And it's not a marketing tool. It is, hey, these are the things that we think are traditionally associated with addiction and treatment failure risk. These are the tools that we measure them with. And these are the data in the aggregate, right, for you to view in terms of what our, quote, success is. With the limitations, because it isn't, they are not perfect data sets and we have work to do. But we have found it was interesting, like to be transparent. Yeah. Which I love to do, <laughs> overshare at times. Well, which you clearly are transparent by putting it on the front page of your website. And, yeah. and it's a, yeah. yeah. So that's the. I think as an organization, it, we had never done that before. Mm-hmm. And I think that there was a little. Not enough for us not to do it, but there were certainly conversations about, wait, should we do this? You know, like what are the risks associated with that? All this kind of stuff. Ultimately, we decided it was just in the best interest of transparency and making sure that we're informing 
patients and their families, consumers about the nat- of what they should expect in treatment and how, again, we view change. And it's been really valuable. Like I can't, we get so many comments um, and interestingly enough, uh, suggestions for revision. So many of oh. our ideas year over year where somebody says, you know, this is all great, but I'm actually really curious about family participation, right? Or length of stay or whatever it might be that helps us kind of get better. Sure. And um, it's been a pleasure to be involved and get to know the stakeholders at NAATP and really work with Annie at building um, – force. And I'll tell a quick story because we met, shout out to John Driscoll and Bobby Ferguson and Marvin and Katie, because we met in the Denver International Airport <laughs> in 2019, because mm-hmm. this is right before the pandemic. Right. No, it was 2020. Oh, okay. Because w- the news was kind of going around about, you know, the West Coast that we all remember acutely. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we had a meeting or there are lots of ideas. We had a consultant that was guiding us about what we should do. And um, at the time, John was the chair. Yeah. And there was a lot of talk about that NAATP is going to do something and what should we do. And so I'm really proud that what we proposed was, hey, we need to collect data together, de-identify. We need to be able to visualize it and share it amongst our provider groups, right, so that the public can be informed because I firmly believe – that our future ability to advocate for our programs will be almost entirely grounded in data. It is the language that other science disciplines speak in. And if we don't invest, it's sort of like, if not us, who mindset. And so I'm proud. I wasn't in the conversations about the financial piece of what this would cost to take this route to fruit, but Root to fruit. <laughs> the board decided we're going to pay for this. You know, yeah. we're going to we're going to put our own money kind of where our mouth is, if right. you will. And they raised a lot of money. Again, Bobby Ferguson was very involved, and they had a uh, a group that was very involved in raising money. But it's been a pleasure, and now it's kind of like, oh shoot, we have a lot of data. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we have like you know close to maybe a quarter million now of unique uh, treatment episodes in terms of unique patient. Which is so exciting. Yeah. 80 facilities. I mean, it really reached a fever pitch, yeah. which is what it, it by design. Right. And so I'm excited to see where that goes in the future to just improve our practices, inform our patients and communicate externally. Right. All three of those things, which of course are imperative, but I look at it too from an advocacy perspective. 100%. And um, as another passion of mine, it is just going to be so incredibly helpful it already is to be able to take that information and say here and here it is this is undisputable and um this is why we need to this is why we need to either keep things the way that they are or this is why we need to make changes yeah and we need your support on this so i have one more like soapbox statement about that and i think that one of the things that behavioral health struggles with is the medicalization of behavioral health. Mm-hmm. But here's really what I mean. Like, let's get practical. Because you hear about that. There's like a webinar about that or whatever. And you're like, well, what, what does that mean? Right. This is what that really means. If I break my arm, mm-hmm. right, we have measurement tools in medicine to take pictures. Oh, turns out I did break both both bones in my forearm, right? Right. X-ray. And then we have a treatment regimen, you know, in terms of, well, maybe I should isolate it. I'm probably going to cast it. I might take some in, a medication to reduce inflammation. And then my physician team is probably going to monitor progress of healing of those bones over time. And when it's healed, then hopefully, ideally, it'll be back to use as it was before. Right. 
I think that there is an expectation with the dominance of that medical binary mindset, which is helpful for bones, helpful for kidney disease, et cetera. But behavioral health change is always a process, not an event. Correct. Right? So the epistemology, not to get super nerdy, but no. the theoretical underpinnings of how people change in, in related to behavior is not organized under the same philosophy. No, it's not. Right? And it, it cannot be, or this is my personal belief, this is not of the association. Gotcha. <laughs> is that it cannot be changed purely by medicine. It Correct. has to be. It too. has to be more than that. Yeah. It can it, it can be complemented by absolutely mm -hmm. without a doubt. And sometimes and it it's be. yes, and it should be. But it you cannot expect someone to fully change by just giving them medication. Right. Another personal example is I'm long familiar with the nature of my problems. Mm. Shout out to myself. Right. <laughs> long before I'm willing to do anything about them. Right. <laughs> right. And in my professional and personal experience. Change is often not driven by insight and more often driven by action. And this isn't just for anybody that's like feeling really upset in their car right. and are going to text me. <laughs> this is, I'm not talking about like pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. That's not what I mean. Yeah. I mean, surround yourself by a community that can be your eyes and your ears. Surround yourself by a professional treatment team that can help expose whether it's trauma or maladaptive coping mechanisms that you develop in your life. Surround yourself by an impassioned purpose that you might be able to discover, and that will translate to the process of behavior change. But expecting people to stop being addicted after a 30-day treatment stay is just not, and I think that our lawmakers and those outside of the day-to-day -day field of behavioral health, it's a, it's a miscommunication. Mm-hmm right? It's not nefarious. It's simply that we just aren't speaking in a language that they can hear in, which is why I believe force is very valuable. Yeah, no, I completely, very well stated. And I completely agree with, with all of that. And I, I think too, that, you know, the discussions about the, the medicine and behavioral health lately, I hear a lot more that mm -hmm. they, people want to change behavioral health, the term behavioral mm -hmm. health. And really? so I ask them, I, I say, so when I say people, it's comments on social media. So <laughs> <laughs> Got let, me, it. let me take a step back. But then I ask, okay, if it's not, if it's not behavioral health, then what should we call it? And nobody has a good answer. So, you know, some people just like to, um, right. but, but I do think it's behavioral health because it's health and it is behavior. And yeah. we have to change both of those things in order to, um, in order to heal. Yeah. And so, yeah. so I want to, I want to push you more on this and from your experience, um, in your vantage point mm -hmm. in the field, how are we changing? What's evolving? How do you see providers stepping up to the plate plate, if you will, to the current problems associated with addiction and co-occurring disorders? Yeah. So there's two main things that I'm going to say about changes in the field. One of them is acquisitions and mergers, and so mm. that's not that's not Let's coming. Talk about it. It's not coming from the medical perspective. Yeah, <clears throat> it's coming from we are seeing less and less of the facilities like Cumberland, let's say, um, and we are seeing more and more of not even necessarily corporate, but we're seeing of bigger conglomerations that that are are buying up facilities, right? And so that's a huge shift and a huge change. And that 
has an impact. And I cannot tell you how many colleagues I've had who work for facilities that have been acquired by someone that are promised nothing's going to change. Everything's going to stay the same. And that is, can I cuss? Sure can. That is bullshit. That is bullshit. Things are going to change. And um, particularly when you have larger entities that are run by, um, and I'm not saying that every CEO needs to be in recovery. Absolutely not. I get it. Absolutely not. Um, But when you have an entity, I might get in trouble for saying this. When you have an entity that's not run by people who understand recovery, people who are money and bottom line driven, it's going to be a different outcome. That's right. It's going to be a different outcome. We'll get in trouble together. Okay. I'll I'll jump in this boat with you. Okay, good. And I'll share my experience. Please. You know, and if you're disinterested in hearing this part of the podcast, jump forward. (laughs) I, um, you know, let me say this. There's a lot of really great providers out in this country. Without a doubt. I get to see them. People change their lives by going to these places. And I am in no way, shape, or form endorsing that we have discovered something special um, or that we are legends in our own mind here at Cumberland Highs Foundation. I believe that, right? We are um, somewhere above average is what I would say. Um, You are a special place, though, I do want to say. I do want to interject that. I appreciate that. But the... An equity fund purchasing a behavioral health program like an addiction treatment provider is focused, their first customer, as quiet as it's kept, is the investors. Let's not be confused about that. Correct. Right? And yeah. I, I hope I have many friends that work for equity back, and there's a great program. So it's not as all do of them. I, That's right? not what I'm saying. That's right. not what I'm saying. Right? Great so care is coming out a lot of them. The com- Good thing is I'm not on social media. Right. <laughs> Christina runs our social media, so she'll let me know <laughs> when the comments flood in. Uh, My or name the direct is Maria or whatever. Smith yeah, on yeah, social media. Yeah. Um, so I don't see it, but the primary customer is the return, mm-hmm. right? It's not the patient. That's just a fact. That's not an opinion, right? Right. And so when you string together like you're talking about five, 10, 15 of these organizations who were once legacy providers as an example or whoever, and you're monitoring a shared EBITDA, that's what it tends to be about. And I hate to say this, but I think that there, there aren't incredible margins in behavioral health. Right. We don't get into this work because we're going to get rich. Right? I mean, we don't. But I definitely, yes. And so generally speaking, you know, what I've seen from some providers is a reduction in FTEs to the bare minimum. And I think that that impacts patient care. Without a doubt, it does. And so if I were to, this is what I would tell somebody that's trying to make an informed treatment decision is understand what the ownership of the organization is like, you know, and the other programs that they're affiliated with so that you can make an informed decision about the nature of care because there are different standards. Although we're all licensed by the state in which we're providing services and generally we're accredited, Mm -hmm. right, either through CARF or Joint Commission. There are – but those are uh, bottom standards. And outcomes. Let's say that too. Yes, (laughs) and outcomes. Yeah, how they're they're doing them because that's – I think that how they're – how they're tracking them, I'm putting air quotes, and um, 
because there are some places out there that say that they have a 90% success rate. Yep. And it Very is not, dangerous. Yeah, it's not And negligent. Legit. It is. And so that should be another question that you are looking at when along the lines of licensing accreditation is, right. is also, are your outcomes valid? Right. So, yeah, that, that is a big change, you know, over the last, because I think in some of the SAMHSA, um, it, it might be the NSATs or the TEDs, which I can't remember which one it is, where it monitors basically uh, the financial status of the organization as a function of the, you know, is it a corporation, is it a nonprofit, right. et cetera? Um, is it for-profit, nonprofit, and how they break that out? We are seeing, and and um, Marvin and y'all's team does a great job of visualizing. He does, yes. With the uh, shout Bubbles. out to Marvin, the the, the, the bubble chart. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so a that's a popular one. Yeah, yeah, because it's a great not... visualization tool. And, it is, and it's really interesting when he shows when his team started, right, and all what the little dots. Now. And now, when you look at it, and they're big, big, big. Uh, bubbles, you right. know, and, and it is a change. It is, it is a change. And I, I'm curious too, what it's going to look like in three more years. Cause I think they'll be even smaller. And part of, part of my hope though, is that the facilities like Cumberland Heights, like Harmony, you yeah. know, High Watch Alina, those there's, there's multiple that are, um, that are still those small bubbles yeah. that provide really, really good yeah. quality care that yeah. that continue to thrive and And, and again, stay we that don't way. have everything figured out. That's not what I'm saying at all. Right. And we certainly hope we've been here we've been um, providing service in Tennessee since July twenty fifth of nineteen sixty six, which is fifty seven years, which which that doesn't make us perfect. <laughs> we've made so many mistakes. We've made all the mistakes, right? But um we hope to continue to serve this community. For sure. And and we're proud of the lives that have been touched and and we're um, excited to continue to be a partner at yeah. the national level and especially at the regional level for all the other providers that are just as successful, quote unquote, as we are in our area. Um, like shout out Ian Henyon, who is here this yeah. morning with yeah. Birmingham Recovery. You know, learning a little bit. He, I, I was joking with him because he took the nerdy tour. Right. <laughs> uh, the untraditional business development. He wanted to know more about how our data infrastructure is set up. And so we had a fun time nerding out together. But Look, we're, we're all here to support, and, and I have learned so much from other providers in our area, and we'll certainly continue to do so. For sure. So mergers, acquisitions is one. Mm -hmm. What was the second one you were going to mention? The second one that I was going to mention is more of – more gearing towards the peer recovery medical mm. models. Mm. I hesitate because I just – I feel – I hesitate. Yeah. Um, and so we see a lot more of that. And I think that it, it's it's imperative to combine and blend those, but we're definitely seeing a much larger shift. Yeah. And I think that there's a multitude of reasons why we're seeing that. Um, and so I am not trying to toot my own horn by saying this, but I, I just graduated in May with my master's and- um, Toot that horn. And yes, you did. It was taught by the creme de la creme in DC of public policy and- there was not very much on residential treatment, mm. like very, very little. Mm. And um, majority of it was on medicated assistant treatment, harm reduction. And um, so there's, I would be remiss to say that there's not a shift in that that we're seeing from um, from a macro level. Can I tell, tell myself a little bit? For sure. Years ago, I was a graduate student, loved being a graduate student. Cause I can show my butt. Yeah. 
I was at an <laughs> ARHE conference. Okay. Association you may want to of, say, yeah. yeah Association <laughs> of Recovery and Higher Education, which are focused on CRCs, collegiate recovery communities, and collegiate recovery programs, which are great programs. Um, and it was in D.C. And at the time, the deputy director, I can't remember his name. Of, who, who was president? Uh, Obama. Okay, so Michael Botticelli. That was it. Yeah. He was the he, he was, was the he was doing a, a a presentation and he he was with the Office of National Drug Control Policy yeah so Office of the Drugs are in the United States oh, yeah and he did a presentation on MAT and so I because I was a graduate student oh, and I have personal experience <laughs> in this like plenary felt the need to at how you know ask so many questions about why <laughs> the federal government was so in support of MAT. For some of the reasons that I alluded to in terms of I felt like if you're just looking at MAT, you know, through a keyhole, it's an incomplete picture of all the resources together that can really create change. And I learned an important lesson because he really checked me. First of all, he was so accessible. So I've had coffee with him. And so humble. And um, in spite of my ego being completely out of control, he took time to talk to a graduate student who was and is a nobody, right? <laughs> I disagree and, with that, but go ahead. And he just said to me, you know, Nick, <clears throat> I hear you. And he did some self-disclosure, which I won't do on this podcast. Right. And he said, you have to understand that this is a different quiver, right, in our whatever holds the arrows, or a different arrow in our quiver, rather. Okay. And that harm reduction is different than treatment. And what we're recommending is that the data, which I agree with, that MAD, MAT does two things really well. It, redu- it reduces over, uh, uh, craving. Correct. And thus reduces overdose incidents. Mm-hmm. And that gives us the opportunity to save more lives and ultimately try to provide access to a life-changing trajectory of recovery. And in that moment... I thought, what a great lesson to remember right. about how our field is changing and how we need to make sure that we're best informed about how these modalities are adjusting. For sure. Um, and make sure that our profession, excuse me, our personal experience isn't discoloring the reality of how many people suffer because MAT has saved hundreds of thousands of lives. Oh, without a doubt. Without you know? a doubt. And for those people that are on it, I am so grateful that we have life-saving medications. Oh, me too. Know. And I have friends. And have- I used some of those medications in my personal recovery when I was detoxing. Yeah. Right. In and in this in, at Cumberland Heights. Yeah. Right. So who am I? <laughs> who are we even sometimes as providers to tell people what avenue that they should start their recovery I think it's our job to make sure that we provide as many of those roads and then kind of equifinality. All roads do lead to a recovery identity. Sure. However you just, de- however you That's right. describe it where That's it becomes, right. where it becomes a little bit tricky though. And I'm curious your perspective on this is like, if you are, if let's say you're in a treatment setting, you're providing all these different roads and avenues, but you have some people who are using and you have some that are not. But so, for example, Mm -hmm. in Florida right now, um, 
I I need to be a little more updated on this bill, but um, medicinal marijuana mm-hmm. is um, being being okayed in recovery residences. Mm-hmm. And um, it's very easy to get a medicinal mm-hmm. marijuana license. And so they are saying that it's not okay for recovery residents to say, no, you can't right. have. And so for me, that's where it gets a little bit tricky of, right. of you know, that blurred line there of your definition of recovery can be different of what my right. definition is, but we also want to, you know, keep people safe. And right. um, so for me, that part I'm trying to figure out. Yeah. And also we're seeing a lot of work, which I think will be a good thing ultimately with hallucinogens. For sure. You know, with psilocybin and ecstasy, MDMA. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is that hallucinogens show to be the most effective drug that we have for nicotine cessation. Oh, I have not seen that. Which is really fascinating. And so the DEA has expanded, you know, academic universities' access to doing these um, huh. investigations. Um, and it's a really fascinating space and place. I think be, it, it's important to remember that we're talking about addiction treatment. Sure. In the scope and scale of all of behavioral health, right? Too, right, <laughs> right. And so it remains to be seen. I think that we want to remain open-minded. I agree. To understand how the science community might suggest these things could or couldn't be helpful for future patients, but I'm kind of with you. Like it does give me pause with an addiction population, for sure. Right, because what I know is, um. Somebody living in recovery is living in an abnormal state. Right. And so based on my experience, for those that are having access to a medicinal marijuana license, as an example, that can be a slippery slope by way of continuing to access that drug and or other drugs that are mood-changing and mind-altering. Right. Right, which is ultimately a part of the problem. Correct. So – Yeah. But I think there's enough space and there's enough hurting people right. for us to – they don't have to be mutually exclusive and they don't have to um, – um, what's the word? Like threaten. Correct. They don't have to compete either. Yeah. So we can have – we can have them. It's just figuring out how to – it's just figuring out how to safely do all of them, I think. Do you think from an advocacy perspective – I mean when I think about this, it makes me th- – Force becomes even more important. Oh, yeah. To be able to tell the story of residential, even PHP extended care programming as a function of peer recovery support and IOP. Right. Right. Because um, access to treatment is a huge issue in this country. Ginormous, yes. You know, and the cost of our programs, I mean, for perspective, like, you know, Come On Heights is a nonprofit, but, you know, to run a residential center, you know, we have to maintain certain ratios in terms sure. of staff to patient. And we also have to have medical professionals and all the other folks operationally that it takes to run an organization that has, you know, we have 350 employees, 20 different sites. And so um, we're an in-network provider proudly. Good. And, but it still is very expensive. Yeah. You know, and unfortunately, most Americans cannot afford to send their loved one to what would be known as a private provider. And so I'm curious about your thoughts about the future of advocacy and maybe like the expediency to which we should be paying attention to this to try to advocate for our programs more effectively. Sure. So access to treatment is something that I myself am a huge advocate for figuring out how to make it, how to make 
good treatment more accessible. And it's also part of NAATP's public policy statement, um, increasing access to treatment. And so it's one of those tricky things too, where it's like, there is, we have, we have thousands of beds out there across the country. Right. Right. And then, but then we have waiting lists at, at state funded facilities. I know the one I live in Palm beach County, we have one for indigent in individuals without health insurance, and it always has a wait list. And so it's being able to figure out how we can, how we can help more people. Um, and where it gets tricky, though, is helping more people, but then still being able to pay your expenses. Mm-hmm. Because so I don't have the answer to that. I wish that I did. Um, but it's something that by, you know, creating awareness sounds like kind of a bullshit thing to say, but it's really not. <laughs> because it's being able to provide resources to the community at large and letting them know about the different options that are out there. Because I can't tell you how many times people will call yep. and not not have any idea where to start, which right. I don't blame them. Why Why would they? Right. Um, but being able to really figure out where either they or a loved one can go. And so I think that's where we need more is, is that education component to, yeah, I think that, I think that that would be very helpful, but I think there's something else that we're missing and I just haven't been able to think of it. Yeah. And there is so much work. It's almost like a, a high tide raises all boats. Right. And it's like more of everything. <laughs> right. More awareness, more policy-driven discussions, more outcomes, more quality. You know, parity is one that's gonna that would be a huge help, and that's if insurance companies would reimburse fair. So who's so what's fair, Nikki? If insurance companies would reimburse what seems to be enough to not only cover treatment but to not. Um, constantly be disputing everything in order to save money. Mm-hmm. And so um, with parity, which was passed when Obama was in, um, was in the admin during the Obama administration, excuse me, um, it, we're still having a heck of a time getting insurances to pay what, what they should. And so I do think that that would be a really big component if for mental health and for substance use disorder, if there was good coverage from insurance companies that weren't continuously being fought. So I do think that that would help a lot with access to treatment. And so there was some movement last month um, within HHS, the Health and Human Services. Um, And so Parity is, we're hoping, got kind of uh, an injection, so to speak, that the insurance companies are going to, their feet are going to be held to the fire, that, no, you have to cover these things. They are illnesses. And so... I'm hopeful that with the consolidation of uh, insurance companies in this country yeah. that um, – because there's a lot of really – we have a lot of really great payer relationships who are willing to develop mutual scorecards yeah. or um, create cr- um, cross-sectional analyses about value, financial value and post-discharge activity as a function of medical claims so that we can better understand how much treatment is needed sure. to – save lives and save money for both the consumer and the insurance company over time. Yeah. The problem and shout out to Greg Williams yeah. is most Americans switch their insurance coverage av- on average every two years. Is that right? So it's that's a, a, that's interesting. It's, it's a kind of musical chairs, right? And so, why would an insurance company want to invest in the long-term value, right, to save money? Because I believe the long-term value of investing on the front end for mental health resources comes out 
beyond two years. Yeah. Washes out beyond two years, three, four, five. But with the consolidation of insurance companies, I'm hopeful that those costs are going to be shared in these big companies vertically, right? From the providers and the payers, which are becoming one and the same. Right. Right. And to be transparent. So um, a huge Greg is brilliant. And, um, you know, he talked to us, speaking of Vermont, when we were in Vermont Mm -hmm. to a group of of CEOs and, and leaders in the field about being able to now see who what reimbursement rates some insurance companies are are giving, but it is like, I mean, what is an analogy I can use? It is really, really challenging to be able to decipher and get that mm-hmm. information. One thing that I think would be really helpful, Nick, would be if there was, if and this would take like multiple people updating it all the time, but if there was an insurance directory of treatment centers, who was in network with who? And because when I get someone who calls and will say, Nikki, I need an, I need, I have Blue Cross Blue Shield. Who can I go to in Florida? And mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I, you should be able to call someone at Blue Cross Blue mm-hmm. Shield, but it's not that easy. Yeah. It, it's not I that believe easy. that's coming. Oh, good. With the, and I can't remember the legislation. That's not necessarily my day to day wheelhouse, but um, with the access, so providers are now being held to the fire to provide machine readable files. Right. As a function of their, um, uh, services and costs. Okay. The problem with machine readable files and having them available is almost nobody can read them. Right. I mean, you need like a serving database to sort of like ma- maneuver through that minutia. So that might be helpful for a provider like us to right. say, well, where do we stack up with other providers in our area? Sure. As a function of our per diems or other things that we're contracted for, physician visits, etc. But the customers, i.e. the families and the individuals having access to what you would think of as a portal system, Mm -hmm. kind of like um, how you buy a car, right? You never show up buying a car not knowing how much it's going to cost nine months down the road, right? Um, In fact, these days with medical, you can have a pretty fair amount of visibility on what it's going to cost to have a knee replacement. Correct, right? Like it's it's pretty – like this is what it's going to cost. Right. Right, but in behavioral health, it can be very variable because – so I think that payers are – starting to we'll just say invest yeah i'm not going to say forced to but invest by way of some federal legislation to and i believe that might be happening this year or next um to create a index yeah or a component that is available to the public to go and search who are the network providers and what's it going to cost against my plan and my deductible and or you know, out-of-pocket cost, which would be super helpful to make informed decisions. I And it's a shame that it's taken until 2023 for yeah. it to, to happen. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really glad, really glad to hear that. Um, I, I want to shift a little bit and ask you about a different topic, which yeah. seems out of left field, but I think it really matters. Okay. As I think about how the acuity of our patients are changing. Yeah. The people that are, that are touched by addiction is changing. Um, social media. Mm-hmm in our culture. Do you have any thoughts about that (laughs) and and about how it might be impacting our practices? I do. And I see positive and negatives. Um, I can see positive and negatives. I myself am on social media. My husband would probably say too much. Um, But we love you, Jim. I think that with LinkedIn, I think LinkedIn, I I tend to trust a little bit more. Um, 
that being said, there's still people who put some ridiculous bullshit out there. Um, so I think it's very challenging, Nick, to decipher what's true and what's not. And yeah. social media makes it even harder to know, particularly if you have somebody who has a lot of followers and is putting information out um, that's not true. It's it's um, It can be very deceiving. And so, but I do think that there's some really good benefits to it. And so a couple of those that I know, uh, SAMHSA puts out some phenomenal prevention tools. And so on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, um, and so those, those are really helpful. Um, those can be really helpful, not only to parents and to community. So I have a daughter who's 11, who's in middle school. And so I use a lot of those resources to be able to share with the school. So that's a benefit that I see. Um, Another downside, we'll go back and forth. Um, Another downside is my daughter is 11 and she is on Snapchat and she is on TikTok. And so we have talked about the the dangers of what can come across there um, because they're not regulated. And that can be so detrimental to not only our youth, but to... um, to anyone who is watching it a lot and who is seeing something that is, that's not true. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's, there's pros and cons with everything, but I definitely see, um, with social media, probably a little bit more downside than I do good side. It's tricky. Um, it's something that we're talking about more clinically here. Sure. Um, because we are starting to see it as a, huge risk. Mm-hmm. You know, someone who puts their phone away, let's just talk about the residential level of care, who might or might not have access to social media and the barrage of posts you might see about some, you know, who's getting engaged or right. who your ex-girlfriend is posting with or <laughs> right. what what your friends are doing. And it can become a microcosm of uh, comparison that is so hard um, even for me, I say that like I've graduated to some higher plan of living. I have not, right? <laughs> um, it's part of the reason why I'm sort of not off social media because I'm like, what's what purposes is really serving? I think there's an opportunity to stay connected with people, correct? By way of communicating with folks that maybe you built a relationship with in treatment or other alumni in your area. We see that all the time with organizations sure. sharing information about events. But gosh, it is. You know, we spend a lot of time on these um, applications, right. and I think that it would be a mistake if we don't consider them a part of now, like our primary culture oh, yeah. and lifestyles. And we need to really prepare our patients for how to live with them. effectively with social media. I agree, and you and I were talking earlier about this, and I think some more studies need to be done about how detrimental social media can yeah. be. And I, I know that they're out there, but I think that. Um, it is, it's so impactful and, and again, can be both good and bad. And there's some good people out there that are sharing really helpful information. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I'll see something and, and be able to, to learn again, I'll say LinkedIn, cause that tends to be a little more, um, professional based, but, um, one of the, one of the detrimental social media things that I see too, are some of these mom groups. Mm. And I, I don't know if you're aware about this, but sometimes they will, there will be some shady marketers who will go in and pose um, on moms who have loved ones that are in treatment groups mm. and try to get try to get patients that way. Mm. And for me, that is one of the most despicable things that is out there. And that's 
Um, you know, we could we could list a number of different social media detriments, but to circle back to what you're talking about in regard to how much time we spend on it and the impact that it has on patients. And, um, you know, do you at Cumberland, do you guys have a, a class or anything on? We have kind of a psych, we'd be more focused on like psychoeducation and community skills. Sure. Um, but I think we need to highlight it more. I agree. You know, I, like, I agree. Again, there's a difference between education and change. For sure. Right. Um, we all get educated on healthy diets. We all get educated on, uh, you know, making the right decision as a function of prevention or just say no. Right. Right. Um, in the past, just analogous to or, or similar to the addiction space. But um, I think we need more by way of really making sure that people feel safe. Right. You know, because it's. Um, it can be really destructive the moment you get out and you hit with a barrage of notifications or messages about what's happening when you've been in a place, you know, where you're trying to focus on change and right. you're building healthy community, you know, it can be a mechanism of disconnection, which is just my worry. So, yeah. Um, something to pay attention to for sure. No, definitely. And it needs to be elevated and talked about more. Yeah. 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 Well, um, there's one thing that before we wrap up, so yeah. you had talked about Ian taking your um, nerdy tour. Yes. And uh, what was the first thing that I asked to do when I came in for our tour? To take a picture of our gym, our basketball court. Right. Yes, our indoor gym. And so uh, you guys have the most impressive basketball court that I've seen. Um, and then we went and played a game and who won? <laughs> yes, I lost a pig to Nikki Soda, which I will proudly say because you're a former basketball athlete. Yes. D1? But that, no, two. Still, D2, right? So I have no shame um in that at all, at all but yeah we're it's a it's a great space yes um and i was excited that you were <laughs> you were so excited and so we got to shoot hoops and it's really good maybe we're gonna have some kind of a basketball competition here in the coming months that you'll have to come back for uh without a doubt yeah so you better come up with a good trophy yeah good first prize well thank you for coming out to nashville to visit us it's a pleasure to host you it's always good to spend time together um, we're going to have fun tonight at the Ryman. Yes. Kid have never been there before. And I just, I want to give a giant shout out to you too, for all the work that you do and you do so much behind the scenes. So you get very little accolades for yeah, the impactful work that, that you do, but not only impactful work for the field, but like within the individuals that you touch. And yeah, so you have a, lot. you have a badass story. And so I'm proud to call you a friend. Thank you. Well, you know, it's, um, to be honest, it's the teams that we have here, you know, I mean, it's my job to make sure that they have the resources they need to do a really good job. And I just try to stay out of the way, <laughs> you know, so whether that's the marketing team or the IT team or wh whoever it might be, you know, there, there are so many unsung heroes, um, who are boots on the ground every day doing this call center staff in our organizations. Yeah that are picking up the phone in an emergency. That's Almost a hard, every call hard job. is an emergency. So um, it's just our pleasure and we're, we're humbled to kind of be a part of the recovery community. So yeah. yeah, tonight is the annual benefit concert at the Ryman, which we're really excited about. Chris Jansen and company will be playing. So Can't wait. Um, we're gonna go recede to our respective <laughs> hotels and homes and nap and then 
I'll see you there. So sounds great. Thank you so much for the invitation and thank you to your team for putting this together. Yeah. Thank you.